Enron and the California Energy Crisis, The Role of Networks in Enabling Organizational Corruption. By Adam Nix. Stephanie Decker. Carola Wolf. Published in Business History Review, 2021, Volume 95, Issue 4. Abstract. We provide an analytically structured history of Enron's involvement in the California energy crisis. In doing so, our analysis explores Enron's emergence as a corrupt organization and its use of an interorganizational network to manipulate California's energy supply markets. We use this history to introduce the concept of network-enabled corruption, showing how corruption, even if primarily enacted by a single dominant organization, is often highly dependent on the support of other organizations. Specifically, we show how Enron combined resources from partner firms with their own capabilities, manipulating the energy market and capitalizing on the crisis. From a methodological point of view, our study also emphasizes the growing importance of digital sources for historical research, drawing particularly on telephone and email records from the period to develop a rich, fly-on-the-wall understanding of an otherwise hard-to-observe phenomenon. Keywords, organizational corruption, organizational misconduct, analytically structured history, digital sources, energy supply industry. Introduction. On June 25, 2003, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, revoked Enron's market-based rate authority, effectively its license to trade wholesale energy, ruling that its Oregon-based West Power Division had manipulated neighboring California's wholesale electricity markets via various gaming practices. As a consequence, they were found to have severely disrupted energy markets through the western states, contributing towards a prolonged shortage of electricity supply that would ultimately become known as the California Energy Crisis. Five years previously, California had dramatically reconfigured its energy supply industry, splitting up the large monopoly utilities and creating markets for electricity to be traded between various participants. The move was the first of its kind within the U.S., following widespread liberalization of other regulated industries like natural gas, and the system initially performed well following its inception in 1998. However, by the spring of 2000, supply problems began to appear, leading to sharp rises in the cost of wholesale electricity. These problems would escalate dramatically over the following year, resulting in rolling blackouts across the state, multiple regulatory interventions, and ruinously high energy prices for both the state's citizens and its utility companies. While similar practices were found elsewhere, Enron's manipulation of California's markets was particularly extreme. Specifically, Enron's traders used their knowledge of the newly designed markets to artificially increase or decrease wholesale prices in their favor, which often involved submitting false supply and demand information, withholding available electricity, or scheduling energy they did not have. They also made use of flaws in the market's new computerized scheduling system, for instance, deliberately overloading parts of the grid to receive payments for then relieving it. Additionally, the FERC found that Enron had entered into undisclosed partnerships with numerous market participants, which allowed them to control energy scheduling and physical infrastructure. Not only did these actions exacerbate the state's high energy prices and supply issues, they directly violated Enron's market-based rate authority, and also contravened numerous rules set out in the protocols designed to govern the new system. Perhaps most significantly, they led to the criminal guilty pleas of three of West Power's most senior traders, Timothy Belden, John Forney, and Jeffrey Richter, who were convicted of intention to commit wire fraud, comparably admitting that. As a result of these false schedules, we were able to manipulate prices in certain markets, arbitrage price differences between the markets, obtain congestion management payments in excess of what we would have received with accurate schedules, and receive prices for electricity above price caps. Within this paper, we engage with the organizational corruption literature as a specific theoretical basis for better understanding Enron's practices, and involvement in the California energy crisis. 
corruption represents a misuse of one's position for personal or collective gain, and within a corporate context, such behaviors tend to manifest as illicit transactions, for example, bribery, agreements, for example, price fixing, deception, for example, misleading investors, or manipulative practices, for example, market abuse. While the underlying social and economic causes of corruption have been extensively theorized, in-depth empirical investigations are less common, in part due to the challenges surrounding its observation. Accordingly, we have a fairly good idea about what makes organizations commit corrupt acts, often as a persistent and routine organizational practice, but we know relatively little about how corruption is actually conceived, managed, and coordinated over time. By extension, the role that outside organizations play is particularly unclear. Clearly, acts like bribery or price-fixing involve external parties, but it is also conceivable that other forms of corruption extend beyond single organization context. Given these gaps, and the regular calls for more empirical elaboration of corrupt phenomena, we provide a historical account of Enron's manipulation that is analytically structured around the elaboration of corruption as an organizational phenomenon. As a concept, corruption is not specific to a given context and, in this sense, it differs from criminality or illegality, which are dependent on geographically specific legal institutions, a decision to prosecute or litigate, and a particular judicial interpretation. While the absence of any one of these factors might preclude a legal outcome, it would not preclude actions or events from being corrupt. This is an important historical consideration, with legal proceedings subject to social, financial, and political conditions, as well as the evidence available at the time. Moreover, convictions for occupational crimes are comparatively rare, even when such behaviors were clearly widespread, because they often occupy an ambiguous space between ethically questionable and actively illegal. Nonetheless, extensive legal and public scrutiny has established that Enron's actions in California deviated from acceptable social norms, both as a matter of ethical standard and as a point of law. Thus, ours is a recognized case of wrongdoing, which offers an entry point from which to explore how organizational corruption was enacted over time within an organizational division and its relationship with other market participants. Our analysis of these activities offers several contributions, the first of which is to add historical insight into Enron's history. Because Enron is most notorious for the extraordinary accountancy scandal that emerged in late 2001, its involvement in the 2000-2001 energy crisis has been somewhat overshadowed. Thus, focus has fallen primarily on its Houston-based executives and the firm's wider political and cultural significance. For instance, Malcolm Salter shows how its leadership created conditions that embedded self-interested behaviors and compromised the judgments of those faced with ethically uncertain decisions. Similarly, Gavin Bank makes connections to social-cultural trends of neoliberalism and globalization, showing Enron's involvement in the crisis as symptomatic of the firm's drift into illicit, and increasingly desperate, financial practices. While specific federal investigations detail the firm's involvement in the crisis, they do not lift their findings to any historical or conceptual significance, not least, as this sort of knowledge production extends beyond their legal mandate. As such, we believe this important aspect of Enron's history warrants continued attention particularly in moving beyond an appreciation of what its traders did, and instead seeking a more detailed understanding of how they did it. The history we present also contributes to the literature on organizational corruption, constituting a historically informed theoretical narrative with both historical veracity and conceptual rigor, what McLean et al. call dual integrity. Empirically, we had much needed insight into the workings of a corrupt organization and how corrupt practices evolve over time, something a historical approach is uniquely placed to provide. In particular, we show the extent to which normalized corruption can be embedded within inter-organizational processes, and the adaptation of these practices in the face of increased public and organizational scrutiny. Conceptually, 
we develop the particular nature of Enron's corruption, which, while orchestrated by Enron as the primary actor, nevertheless was facilitated by a network of partner firms around Enron and could not have taken place without the active involvement of these network partners. We label this network-enabled corruption, a type of corruption in which a dominant organization, in this case, Enron, coordinates with a complicit network of partner organizations to achieve illicit ends. This accounts for situations where corruption is primarily organized and enacted by a single corrupt organization, but sustained by other organizations who are a removed, but nonetheless, vital component. Inter-organizational corruption in this form is less likely to be seen horizontally among collusive competitors, and, as in our case, can exist within ostensibly legitimate market relations of service provider and client. Similarly, it differs from other notions of network corruption, which revolve around illicit transactional activities like bribery or rent-seeking, generally between private and public actors. Thus, our narrative presents a materially different way of looking at corruption as an inter-organizational phenomenon. In addition to its historical and theoretical contributions, this paper also holds methodological novelty. That is, we demonstrate how digital-era primary sources can be used to provide an unprecedented view into the workings of a historically important organization, and how they can elaborate usually hidden or underrepresented historical events. For business historians in particular, the growing importance of digital sources is particularly clear, as great swaths of organizational records keeping and communication practice migrated to digital platforms from the mid-90s onwards. Indeed, it is quite conceivable that to fully understand historically important events like the emergence of the dot-com economy or the 2007 final crisis, historians will need to engage with these so-called born digital sources. While this is a real and present consideration for archivists, we are among the first business historians to emphasize the affordances they present to our practice. Accordingly, we demonstrate the fine-grained insights such sources provide, showing how Enron manipulated regulatory reforms, and the process by which traders normalized corruption within the division and their network of external partnerships. Organizational corruption. While corruption often represents an abuse of publicly mandated authority, necessitating the involvement of a legislative or executive office, the concept holds relevance to a broad collection of social contexts. Indeed, the conceptualization of wrongful organizational activities as corrupt, has gained significant prominence, embodying what Ashforth and Onan refer to as the illicit use of one's position of power for perceived personal or collective gain. Thus, while lawfulness is often an important consideration in cases of corruption, it is not a defining criterion, as is the case with white-collar crime, corporate fraud or other related terms. Instead, corruption focuses on the underlying social phenomena behind such activities, in that they deviate from accepted social norms, involve the misappropriation of entrusted position and are enacted with a view to some form of undue benefit. Within an organizational context, actors either leverage corruption for the benefit of their organization at the expense of stakeholders, or for themselves at the expense of their organization. We focus on corruption as the former, focusing on wrongdoing that is collectively practiced, and primarily enacted for organizational gain. Such behaviors have been seen as endemic within the late 20th century and early millennium, aided by the emergence of increasingly ambiguous, deregulation and a push for entrepreneurial innovation more generally. However, there is plenty of pervious historical precedence. Within the early energy supply industry itself, the creation, and subsequent collapse, of the industry's utility holding companies was a significant contributor to the Great Depression, disintegrating the corporate empires of energy tycoons like Samuel Insel. While not themselves illegal, their unregulated expansion became a context for widespread investor speculation, market manipulation and embezzlement. Insel himself famously convinced the criminal courts that, though flawed, his actions were ultimately honest, but others, like Howard Hobson of Associated Gas and Electric Company, 
were found to have committed numerous offenses, including mail fraud, conspiracy, and unlawfully making profits. As Edwin Sutherland's analysis of associated gas and electric and 14 other utilities shows, such cases were far from aberrations, with acts of collusion, financial misrepresentation, and misappropriation rife among the industry's executive elite. Indeed, his work on white-collar crime broke new ground, challenging the assumption that pervasive criminality was the preserve of the lower classes and their circumstances and showing that the well-to-do were more than capable of committing serious crimes, particularly through their organizational position. Though it was subsequently criticized for overfocusing on the offender, over the offense, his work here made forensically clear the prevalence, severity and social cost of wrongdoing within organizational and economic contexts. While Sutherland's work centered around relatively senior executives, corruption within organizations often transcends villainized individuals like Hobson, permeating throughout an organization's structure and hierarchy. John Brooks' analysis of price fixing between General Electric and other post-war heavy electrical equipment manufacturers highlights that, even when wrongdoing is expressly prohibited, it can become a widespread and implicitly accepted practice. Organizational corruption research highlights the importance organizational characteristics and conditions, for example, competition, resource scarcity, that coerce or facilitate a decision to act wrongfully. While this is suggestive of a rational calculation of risk and return, such assessments, if consciously made at all, are invariably bounded by the incomplete information available to actors, along with their own cognitive limitations. Nonetheless, where structural conditions present the potential for reward, or forfeiture, they can create a criminogenic environment, which encourages or even compels misconduct. This was seen within the U.S. saving and loans industry, when regulations governing thrift institutions were relaxed, precipitating widespread fraudulent behavior. Similarly, globalization and the neoliberal turn toward deregulation since the 1980s is often lamented for their catalytic effects on levels of corporate illegality and corruption. Here, as with the 1929 crash, a focus on financial innovation and global competitiveness was seen to blur accepted business norms and heightened expectations for extraordinary performance. Within organizations, systemic characteristics such as culture, leadership, and incentives can facilitate corruption, encouraging and ultimately embedding it as an acceptable means to goal attainment. The process by which these corrupt behaviors are normalized further shows how the mindful action of a limited few can become increasingly mindless and widespread, as they are incorporated within an organization's structures and processes. Even in cases where wrongdoers are aware of the transgressive nature of their actions, they often use alternative interpretations to rationalize them, reframing dissonant information in line with a self-deceptive but morally tolerable explanation. Incumbent perpetrators also use rationalizations rhetorically to socialize newcomers into the group's particularistic worldview. While these theories provide a valuable insight into corruption as an organizational phenomenon, they generally focus on what engenders and maintains a willingness to act corruptly. However, the practice of corruption remains largely hidden behind its clandestine nature, and we still need to empirically elaborate how it is actually incorporated and maintained within discrete organizational and industry contexts. Furthermore, corruption as an interorganizational phenomenon remains particularly underexplored. Beyond inherently interorganizational collusion like price fixing, there is a wealth of evidence showing that criminal and unethical organizational practices often include actors from outside a single organization. For instance, analysis of the U.S. automobile industry shows that manufacturers were complicit in the illegality of their franchise dealers, incentivizing illicit sales practices by exerting superior market power. Similarly, when Wall Street trader Dennis Levine embarked on an episode of sustained insider trading, it was a carefully maintained network of external co-conspirators that provided the information material to his scheme. While interorganizational, the level of active collaboration in these cases remains relatively low, 
with incidents of corruption still occurring largely within discrete organizational settings. However, some industries, particularly those involving network technologies like electricity, necessitate far greater levels of interdependence between market participants, which in turn affects how organizations navigate institutional arrangements. Where such settings are conducive to corrupt means, they present a highly relevant context from which to understand structural boundaries of corruption as a collective operational practice. This is the case for Enron, and we discuss the sources from which we reconstruct these activities in the next section. Making use of digital sources. As highlighted recently by Armando Castro and colleagues, corruption presents a serious methodological challenge to management scholars, as the contexts in which it occurs are invariably clandestine, and thus difficult to directly study. We believe that historical approaches can add significant value as an alternative to the social scientific methods that predominate this area. Indeed, business historians are well positioned to contribute to wider debates in the study of wrongdoing, as has already been seen in related areas like fraud and white-collar crime. For such phenomena, the selection of a case or contextual setting is invariably in the past and events are often difficult to fully appreciate without sufficient hindsight. Moreover, information released during subsequent judicial proceedings are often valued by those seeking to piece together and illuminate otherwise hidden aspects of organizational events and actions. These traces of the past often take the form of retrospective inquiry reports and judgments, or submitted evidence like company records or social correspondence, materials highly suited to critical source analysis. Despite this, explicitly historical studies on organizational corruption are rare, and we suggest that a more historically cognizant treatment of organizational corruption has scope to add significant empirical and theoretical understanding. In this regard, more recent historical periods offer particularly rich insight, as digital technologies like personal computers and the internet have changed the nature of those traces left behind. Within this research, we use a uniquely rich collection of digital historical sources to empirically elaborate historical events in ways that would not have been otherwise possible. This is because digital technologies preserve organizational life in ways that analog equivalents do not. In particular, communication technologies are very good at capturing the ephemera of daily life from varied organizational contexts, rather than correspondence of high-level managers and executives that are more typically well represented in traditional archives. For us, this provided a view that included both junior and senior divisional employees, as well as their day-to-day -day interactions, many of which were too fleeting to have survived as traditional historical sources. Moreover, such insights are of particular value to understanding wrongful behaviors, which are usually pieced together from trial proceedings and occasional smoking gun, rather than fly-on-the-wall views into its actual enactment. In this sense, our research is illustrative of both the digital shift emerging within historical research generally, and the specific affordances such sources offer to researching otherwise hidden organizational phenomena. The sources we used were mostly accessed via the FERC's e-library, which provides online access to its public collection of regulatory proceedings and related records. In particular, we made use of telephone transcriptions relating to 380 timestamp trading floor calls. Obtained from digital audio tapes linked to each of Enron's trading desks, these capture the traders' daily interactions with various relevant parties, including colleagues, competitors, customers, and regulatory representatives. The original recordings were created and used internally by Enron, primarily as means of recording oral offer and acceptance, but they were seized under federal subpoena, whereupon calls relevant to the case were transcribed and made public by the FERC. As a geographically dispersed and time-sensitive task, the trading and scheduling of wholesale energy relied heavily on telephone conversations, even over alternative forms of digital communication like email. As such, these records provided the main insight into how Enron organized corruption, both internally throughout the division and its hierarchy and with its partner organizations. 
because only the most relevant tapes for the case were transcribed, the conversations made public are a relatively small sample of those originally obtained. Nonetheless, they give a highly relevant sample of corruption-related interaction, centering around Enron's manipulation of California energy markets and the key events in the energy crisis. We complement these sources with other company documents filed during FERC's investigation, including memos, meeting minutes and other standalone items of correspondence. These were generally digitized reproductions of printed documents that were submitted individually for their specific relevance to a particular legal assertion. We also used legal documents such as expert witness testimonies and legal briefs, which provided additional insight into the case. Importantly, these also contextualize the various documents submitted, as they would generally cite and explain those they submitted. Additionally, we draw on a dataset of Enron's emails, publicly released by the FERC in the fallout from the company's failure. Unlike the other sources we use, the emails were published as a corpus for public and historical interest, rather individually based on specific legal arguments. As such they represent a large, uncurated dataset, over 500,000 emails from 150 accounts, and we limited our focus to accounts relevant to the Portland Trading Office. Together, these company records provided important additional sources of insight, adding details about the case and allowing us to better contextualize the often technical and partial nature of the surviving telephone correspondence. In addition to the above primary sources, we also make use of summary reports and decisions that together concluded the various legal proceedings into California's energy crisis. While these provide valuable insight, they carry limitations as a source of historical record. For one, legal decisions are relatively atemporal, being structured around specific legal issues and only considering temporality when relevant to the case. This makes past actions and events difficult to understand without reinterpreting and reordering their findings with a view to historical knowledge creation. Additionally, as there were various proceedings relevant to this case, the insight they provide is very dispersed. In this sense, reading a single report, even the FERC's final report, provides a partial and relatively specific picture of the crisis and the action that contributed towards it. Moreover, these decisions themselves rely heavily on related briefs, exhibits and testimonials, to contextualize the summary discussion. Without synthesizing this body of supporting legal material, a full appreciation of the case would be extremely hard to achieve. Judicial process is also necessarily bound by a duty to determine legally relevant facts and apply the law. These circumstances mean that, while Enron's involvement in the California's energy markets has been heavily investigated as a point of legal interest, the historical and conceptual importance of this case remains largely hidden. The Rise of Enron and California's Energy Supply Reforms The energy company Enron was formed by the merger of Houston Natural Gas and Omaha-based in Turn North in 1985, under the leadership of Ken Lay. The new entity constituted a major player within the natural gas industry, controlling the largest system of transmission pipelines in North America. Lay was a vocal advocate of free markets, and this quickly became a core aspect of Enron's public identity and their justification for liberalization within the energy industry. Thus, when natural gas was deregulated in the late 80s, Enron looked to capitalize, working with then McKinsey consultant, Jeffrey Skilling, to develop a new, commodity-based form of natural gas trading. Pitched as a gas bank, Skilling believed gas should be traded through a mediating partner rather than directly between buyer and seller, as was currently the case. Enron would continue to push the envelope of financial innovation, persuading the energy sector to embrace ever greater levels of commoditization and financial service provision. In 1990, Skilling left McKinsey to head up Enron's financial services division. His experience in banking and finance influenced his commoditized vision of income generation, and he soon turned the gas bank into a success, solidifying his position within the firm. Over the next few years, Skilling continued to champion financialization, 
introducing a variety of energy-related financial services and placing Enron as an interface between buyers and sellers of commoditized energy products. Such activity was a stark contrast to the firm's historic focus on heavy assets like pipelines and power plants. However, with skilling success, the company increasing resembled the organizations found on Wall Street rather than the gas company of its past. While the dynamic and innovative face of Enron sought to naturalize extraordinary growth, increasingly deceptive accounting practices were hiding a troubling financial reality. By 1997, Enron had gone from a significant, if globally obscure natural gas company, to an organizational phenomenon with substantial visibility and political sway. Young, aspirational, and bright graduates wanted to work for the company that promoted the importance of brains above age or experience. Furthermore, its political presence as an advocate of deregulation was substantial, helped in no small way by Lay's connections to Washington. Despite significant diversification, much of Enron's focus remained based in the energy sector. It was here that the firm directed its deregulation advocacy, seeing electricity markets as the greatest opportunity for new profit streams. As political appetite increasingly aligned with Enron, government and industry alike looked with ever-increasing optimism to the role of competitive markets within electricity supply. The distribution of electricity supply to consumers, or ratepayers, relies on two key physical components, generation, the ability to produce electricity, and transmission, the capacity to transfer large amounts of it to its point of distribution. As excessive quantities of surplus electricity cannot be stored, it has the potential to overload system infrastructure. Conversely, too little energy will necessitate the limiting of voltage, brownouts, or total absence of supply, blackouts. This challenge necessitates a precise balance between generated supply and electricity demand. This is achieved through so-called scheduling, which involves the advanced planning of a base level of generation, anticipating availability and demand at a given point in time, 24 hours ahead. If needed, this is adjusted closer to the time of transmission, day of or hour ahead, and in some cases reserves might be called on to negate any unexpected shortfall. Care must also be taken not to congest transmission lines by scheduling too much energy through particular paths. Using this combination of planning and redundancy, electricity can be reliably delivered to ratepayers, while avoiding the risks of overgenerating. Energy supply, like other core public service industries, has long been at the heart of contestation about government's role in the intervention and regulation of business. California's pre-1998 grid, as with other U.S. states, was made up of vertically integrated utility companies who supplied captive consumers in a geographic area, predominantly using their own generation and transmission infrastructure. This arrangement, established in New Deal movements towards institutional economic policy, encouraged the naturally monopolistic tendencies of network technologies, leaving utilities to internally coordinate the interdependent functions required for a reliable and safe electricity service. Nonetheless, no one utility exists in isolation. Rather they are connected directly to others as a regional system, or interconnection, which is itself then connected to other interconnections. Thus, California is a single, if substantial, area within the Western interconnection, which is itself part of the North American grid. From their position within this macrogrid, California's utilities could undertake limited import and export arrangements and mitigate potential reliability issues. Though the integrated utility structure had endured, Global events and the economic realities of capital-intensive infrastructure projects had blurred this framework over time. Specifically, legislation in the late 70s encouraged independent, private generation, which was then sold to utilities through generous long-term contracts. By the late 1980s, the cost of maintaining both these contracts and their own generation infrastructure was contributing to higher operating costs for utilities and Californians were paying more for their electricity than any other state. Moreover, as independent, non-integrated, 
generation was prevalent within the grid, many questioned whether vertical integration was still required. This added weight to the arguments of those who believed government's presence in industries like energy was stifling innovation and impeding competitiveness. In line with broader political trends of the time, and encouragement by companies like Enron, regulators widely agreed that integrating competition would address many of their issues. Such initiatives had already been initiated elsewhere, for instance in the UK, where a mandatory wholesale pool market had been implemented in the early 1990s. Thus, on September 23, 1996, the state agreed to restructure its electricity system, setting in motion a radical departure from the predominating vertically integrated supply model. Though widely referred to as deregulation, by no means did this process represent the wholesale adoption of market forces. Instead, the regulatory framework governing energy was substantively reconfigured, introducing competitive elements to an otherwise regulated system. Specifically, the bill required utilities to sell and purchase power on a newly created spot market, the power exchange, PX, rather than generating for their own demand. Moreover, it curtailed their ability to enter bilateral contracts with independent generators, making the PX the main mechanism of domestic and interstate market exchange. To manage the physical delivery of electricity, the California Independent Systems Operator, ISO, was created to manage statewide transmission and held responsibility for contingency and adjustment administration. As such, the ISO would receive the PX's market information, ensuring enough power was available. If transmission lines were congested, their automated computer system would set artificial price adjustments to incentivize the required change in scheduled flow. Finally, caps were introduced to reduce consumer rates by 10%, freezing them for a four-year transition period and ensuring the public saw an immediate positive outcome from the reforms. Establishing an illicit path to profit. Throughout the 90s Enron had increasingly developed an aggressive performance focus and, with profits from natural gas waning, the firm looked to electricity to sustain its profitability. To this end, Enron acquired Portland General Electric, PGE, in July 1997, providing a route into the Western Interconnection and California's new markets. The state's reforms were the culmination of a sustained public relations campaign by Enron, and its executives were naturally eager to capitalize on these efforts. Moreover, they saw an opportunity to leverage Enron's knowledge of financial markets and trading in an untapped market. To this end, the goals for the acquisition were closely tied to their vested interest in energy deregulation and an ethical climate that valued profit maximization in an increasingly competitive business environment. This entry point would encourage the initial interrogation of California's new regulations for weakness and provide the initial grounding for gaming as an acceptable trading practice. Following the acquisition, Enron created the West Power Division, locating it in the same building as PGE in Portland. This new division's role was to buy and sell wholesale electricity and manage trading activities for other parties. As its senior traders worked to understand the complex new systems, it became clear that the rules and protocols California had devised contained flaws, offering potentially profitable opportunities to anyone with the knowledge and inclination to use them. Indeed, other large energy companies like Reliant and San Diego Gas and Electric were similarly interested in the new regulation, and how they might leverage its potential deficiencies. However, Enron's distinctive presence as a financial entity and the unambiguous prioritization of profit, encouraged a particularly unsympathetic pursuit of these regulatory variabilities. To this end, the division's leaders began to analyze the rules, and by late 1997, started actively exploring the market's exploitable weaknesses with a view to generating operational income in the process. At this time, Enron was approached by others keen to exploit such loopholes. Among them was George Backus, a consultant associated with Perot Systems, the information technology provider that had designed California's new automated market protocols. 
In designing these protocols for both the ISO and PX computer systems, Pro Systems had amassed a substantial working knowledge of the new market's features, limitations and flaws. Using this knowledge, Bacchus promoted his consultancy services, offering market participants a privileged view into the new regulatory landscape within which they would operate. A fax sent by Bacchus to utility companies highlights the extent to which these opportunities for profit were morally uncomplicated, noting, T here may be ethical issues related to the end justifying the means but there is a large region of opportunities between what is ethically viable, profitable, and ethically dangerous, illegal. Though he also suggested they destroy, the fax, or black out selected sections after you have read it, his endeavors did not go unnoticed for long. In October, the head of the ISO chastised Perot Systems not only for its violations of basic norms of business ethics and bad faith dealing, but also risking seriously eroding the integrity of the California market system. Despite this, Bacchus and his team continued to offer services based on this information to various market participants, including Enron's West Power Traders. A presentation, entitled Profit Maximization Under UK and USD Regulation, contained a section on using California PX ISO and FERC rules in the best advantage. Here, the presenters were quick to naturalize such activity, arguing market distortions are inevitable and distortions force gaming to clear the market. In contradiction, however, gaming, i.e., taking unfair advantage of the rules and procedures, was explicitly prohibited by the new market's rules. Nonetheless, the presentation went on to identify how various automated protocols would behave in different market conditions and the best tactics for capitalizing on them. Among those in attendance was the then director of Enron's California Trading Desk, Tim Belden. His handwritten notes on subsequent tutorial handouts allude to his particular interest in these vulnerabilities, foreseeing the potential to profit from deliberately congesting transmission lines. In the months that followed, the division's senior traders remained in contact with the consultants, clarifying details and further developing their understanding of market vulnerabilities. Belden in particular remained convinced of their value, and in a personal review document, he was explicit in seeing gaming as a core aspect of Enron trading strategy. California gaming, we always say that we need to increase this activity but we never do. Need to work more closely with cash, scheduling, and real-time, desks, to maximize opportunities. At this time, such activity was still largely exploratory, with occasional internal trading notes highlighting trades as phony, with the cited goal to see if we could and take advantage of buying power at the ex-post price. Additionally, they alluded to the involvement of its clients, with traders seeking case-by-case partnerships to trial particular games. Thus, Enron had entered a period of incremental testing, probing the regulations to find those practices its traders might successfully implement on a larger scale. In addition to providing technical insight, these efforts provided an initial precedence for the integration of gaming practices within the division's operational processes, going as far as to formally document them for review by Enron superiors. The most notable example of testing occurred in May 1999, when Belden conducted what he would later characterize as a market experiment. On the morning of May 24, Belden bid to supply 2,900 MWs of power for the next day to the California PX from a Nevada-based generation source. In order to provide this, he scheduled transmission through a small path called Silver Peak. Although theoretically within the ISO's transmission network, Silver Peak was a small capacity line installed solely for the transfer of power from a generator in Nevada through to California. In what one expert witness called a proof-of-concept scheme, Belden had orchestrated a situation whereby only 15 MWS of the 2,900 MWS of power the ISO thought it was getting could actually be delivered. In effect, he had purposefully congested a path, allowing him to observe what happened when the ISO system intervened to decongest it. 
While this had clear reliability implications, Belden's gamble was that the ISO system would mitigate any physical risk to supply, causing unintentional, but lucrative, market distortions. Indeed, once submitted to the ISO, Belden's schedule triggered the congestion relief protocols that Perot Systems had helped create. These automatically set about trying to balance the congested path and, in doing so, paid Enron to decrease transmission on the congested path. The schedule had also created significant variance between anticipated and actual supply, and this was remedied by increasing out-of-state imports, using reserve power, and reducing demand in the day-ahead market through increased prices. Importantly, Belden's experiment demonstrated that it was possible to influence prices using California's congestion protocols and receive payments to relieve purposefully created congestion. In effect, traders could be paid extra to resolve problems that they themselves had created, in this case, costing Californian ratepayers an estimated $4.6 million to $7.0 million in the process. However, the episode did not go unnoticed and, following a lengthy investigation, the PX concluded Belden's actions violated its scheduling and control protocols, and showed disregard for, its, primary goal of maintaining efficient and fair markets. Enron also conducted their own internal investigation, sending the Director of Regulatory Affairs to interview Belden. In addition to advocating his case, she encouraged him not to report a similar trade he made in January, lest the PX realize Silver Peak was not an isolated incident. Enron ultimately settled with the PX for a modest $25,000, which reflected the firm's commendable cooperative attitude during the investigation and the PX's limited regulatory jurisdiction to apply further penalty. Enron also agreed that Belden's conduct would not be substantially repeated, however, its traders now had much of the information they needed and were already looking to operationalize it through more sustainable means. Thus, Silver Peak represented only the initial stage of their descent into corruption. Belden had not actually tried to hide his actions and therefore did not need to maintain an illusion of legitimate trading practice. Moreover, he did not intend to repeat them, at least, not in their current form. Instead, Silver Peak constituted an isolated corrupt act, albeit one that would precipitate future normalization of related practices. As such, it was indicative of the relatively isolated, emergent nature of corrupt activity within the division at that time. Enron's defense of Belden during Silver Peak had also positively sanctioned such activity, presenting gaming as concordant with the company's wider culture and ethical position. Even if the operational particularities of manipulative energy trading were largely bound with the division, Enron's executives saw the leveraging of California's new system as vital to the company's financial prosperity. Ultimately, through purposeful investigations, Enron had opened a path to substantial future profit. Going forward, it was this potential that they sought to harness. Normalizing corruption. By late 1999, Belden was running the whole West Power Division, allowing greater autonomy to pursue gaming opportunities. Additionally, a trader responsible for a small-scale gaming scheme in Canada, John Lavordo, was now Belden's superior. In Lavordo, Belden had a boss who understood the potential gaming offered and shared similar ethical views on its use. While experiments like Silver Peak had provided valuable insight, they were unsubtle, so Belden and his senior traders began incorporating this knowledge into more covert trading strategies. These were predefined formulas that exploited vulnerabilities in California's systems while disguising the trader's true intent. Moreover, they could be used many times, in much the same way a play might be employed in American football, thus, allowing senior traders to embed and routinize gaming as a widespread, consistent practice within the division. In this way, the end of 1999 saw reports of preliminary success in exploiting the ISO's flawed system. One of the division's traders, Scott McKinney, even cited Gaming California's congestion management system among his accomplishments, capturing significant value in the process. 
During this time corruption was, therefore, increasingly normalized, moving beyond the instigating actors and into the everyday activities of the wider division. As part of this escalation, traders also began to further embed manipulation into Enron's external service relationships, providing the control of generation and transmission scheduling needed to actually execute their strategies. For instance, to utilize one particularly popular strategy, Fat Boy, traders used the control of partners' generation output and scheduling to misrepresent demand for electricity in the day-ahead market, on the basis this would give them excess generation to sell in the higher real-time markets. As such, traders would make regular calls to partners, instructing them to turn units on or off, and on occasion, partners would even contact traders to let them know when they were in a good position to use the strategy. Thus, cooperative arrangements between Enron and other parties allowed the illusion of normal trading activity, when in reality it was fictitious and implemented for ulterior reasons. Thus, by increasing the division's integration into its partners' operational activities and decision-making, Enron's existing business model provided traders with the means to enact their corrupt strategies. Ultimately, these consulting arrangements allowed traders to convert their knowledge of the market's flaws into something they could implement in a discreet and repeatable manner. In return, the partner firms generally received a predefined percentage share of the traders' returns, benefiting from Enron's superior trading expertise that they themselves lacked. Despite the openness and regularity with which Enron pursued these relationships, the formally undisclosed nature of these collaborations breached market rules designed to limit the very market power that they were now providing Enron's traders. One of the earliest and most prominent of these partnerships was Enron's relationship with Texas-based utility, El Paso Electric. Enron had maintained a close relationship with El Paso for several years and, when the opportunity to profit from California materialized, the utility was quick to sign up to the traders' plans. An example of the sort of arrangement agreed between the two firms can be seen in an email sent by the head of real-time trading, John Forney, to staff in early April, when he reports a new arrangement for the will-out strategy. We have struck a deal with El Paso where we buy from them PV, Paula Verde, and sell to them 4C, 4 corners, for a $10 spread. They don't flow any power because they have the rights at both points, and they collect a check, no risk to them. Today, we have been paid in the mid-40s to relieve congestion. With approximately $4 of expenses, we make $31 no risk margin. Accordingly, by working with companies like El Paso, traders could create an apparently legitimate schedule, the sole purpose of which was to trigger congestion relief payments. Enron also ran a large proportion of El Paso's scheduling activity, providing control of generation and privileged information, which they used to affect levels of energy available to the Californian markets. It was the success of this early relationship with El Paso that would ultimately inform the development of a wider network of partners, serving as a model for many of Enron's other relationships. Traders also leveraged Enron's ownership of PGE, contravening the requirement to remain operationally distinct from the acquired utility, controlling large portions of its operations instead. Through these means, a network of complicit organizations began to emerge, with each affiliated firm embedded in the actions of Enron as a dominant corrupt organization. By leveraging its partners' physical assets, information and assistance, West Power Trading was able to pursue profit for itself and its partners, via collectively enabled market manipulation. As traders developed more strategies, they created code names to distinguish them, further embedding their usage in the collective memory and language of the division and its network of partners. While many of the names appear to stem from internal actors, some even naming them eponymously, it is clear external actors also used and understood them, even participating in their development. For instance, in April 2000, Forney was in the initial stages of coordinating a new congestion strategy with Californian Utility, City of Reading, when he includes his counterpart in the naming of their new game, suggesting the now notorious, Death Star. John, 
Okay, what do you want to call this project? We have to have a catchy name for that? Trader, project, ah, I was going to say project loop, but I don't want that to go out in the world. John, how about you know something friendly like Death Star? Trader, laughter, how about reduce the debt, debt star because we are trying to reduce our debt here. Whenever we make money it reduces our debt. Consistent with other accounts of collective wrongdoing, such interactions also allude to the excitement that surrounded the new strategies, with codenames compounding their novelty. Others were simply illustrative of their process. In this way, a ricochet involved the rebounding of a scheduled out-of-state energy back into California, simultaneously reducing apparent supply and avoiding the state's price caps. Thus, codenames made complicated gaming processes easily identifiable and engaging, helping to embed them into accepted trading activity. Once arrangements were established for a particular strategy, senior traders used the formal structures to disseminate instructions to traders within the division, who were responsible for much of the day-to-day implementation and coordination with partners. Ultimately, at least 72 of the 100-strong division were involved in these strategies, along with as many as 30 generators, who were complicit in supporting Enron and shared in their profits. Expectations were openly communicated in meetings and reference materials, with the Real-Time Division Service Handbook providing detailed instructions for market manipulation, specifying the generation units, transmission paths and participants to use in the process. Here, the level to which manipulation had become a routine part of trading is highlighted in the FERC's comments on the use of such handbooks. IF prices in the California market are high, the Enron employee would refer to the handbook section entitled Who Do You Call and What Action to Take? The Enron employee first decides if the price is high enough to be profitable to the customer. If it is profitable, the Enron employee would, generate or import and fake, or increase, load. In this situation, the Enron employee could call, for example, Glendale or Valley Electric and instruct them to increase imports into the California ISO control area. The handbook lists the transmission paths to be used. Furthermore, the ability to use trading strategies appropriately became an explicitly articulated performance criterion with an agenda from a staff meeting even referencing formally monitored proficiency tests. The agenda goes on to update the group on current strategy options and even introduces three new employees, referred to as players, illustrating the overt nature of managerial expectation, and the speed at which new traders were socialized into the use of corrupt practices. Once normalized, market manipulation was neither spontaneous nor occasional. Rather, Traders at various levels of the division's hierarchy repeatedly and systematically applied strategies on an everyday basis. In this way, Enron's senior traders had taken their preliminary knowledge of market weaknesses and, by embedding it in the processes and structures of the division, had routinized its practice in only a matter of months. Furthermore, successfully developing external partnerships with generators had given vital access to resources, information, and assistance. In this way, a network of actors from multiple organizations had formed around Enron with the collective aim of exploiting California's regulations. While Enron was the linchpin, its traders' corruption had clearly moved beyond this single organization, evolving to include a network of corruption-enabling partner organizations. Thus, while market manipulation was initially encouraged by the criminogenic nature of the new regulatory environment and Enron's own ethical climate, it was the sustained, interorganizational cooperation of market participants that had actually made it possible to pursue organizational returns via corrupt means rationalizing in response to crisis. By spring 2000, senior traders had normalized corruption in the form of gaming throughout the division and its network of partner organizations. However, this normalization was still susceptible to disruption. Before the crisis, traders had deployed their strategies within a relatively uneventful market environment, where minimal price volatility and supply issues had kept electricity in the back of public consciousness. However, from May, 
the price utilities paid for electricity started to rise significantly, consistently reaching the ISO's wholesale cap of $750-MWH during that month and beyond, into the summer. While the causes were unclear, new regulations, unseasonable weather conditions, and suspicions of opportunistic behavior by companies such as Enron were variously singled out for blame. At this point, Enron's traders and their network of partners increasingly used rationalizing techniques to account for the unfolding crisis, negating cognitive dissonance by reconciling corrupt acts as acceptable, based on certain ideological positions. For instance, when discussing the situation in California with Belden, his superior notes, IT's just, expletive, unfortunate, we're going to have repercussions of all this stuff, and not necessarily because we do anything wrong. You take this much money out of a market, I think that there's um, you know, they just, expletive, like try to find something. Such views follow the pre-crisis logic underpinning its initial exploration of vulnerabilities, that is, a belief that its actions were a legitimate part of participation within a flawed market. Accordingly, in the same way George Backus had argued that gaming was a natural stage in the process of deregulation, trading strategies were an uncomplicated route to profit maximization. Thus, the view prevailed that if they're going to put in place such a stupid system, it makes sense to try to game it. Accordingly, when the system started to fail, this too was added to their interpretation of acceptability. Arguably, the crisis was something of a perfect storm, with multiple factors together creating an exceptional situation. Firstly, there were several supply and demand issues. Low rainfall contributed to drought conditions in the Northwest, which limited the hydroelectric generation California could import. Coupled with the state's low domestic output, this meant that available generation was lower than previous years. On the demand side, hot weather increased air conditioning and refrigeration-based consumption, adding to demand. This compounded an existing trend of demand increase, caused by the state's economic development, particularly Silicon Valley, and greater domestic consumption. These factors significantly contributed to the shortage and thus the price increases. The new regulations did not help this situation. The cap on consumer rates had essentially decoupled demand from the cost of supply, and with this, the economic situation became problematic for utilities. Forced to pay a heightened price for wholesale energy, they were unable to pass any of this increase on to ratepayers. In turn, the ratepayer had no financial incentive to use less energy. Thus, there was minimal opportunity to reduce the price through economically incentivized demand reductions. As summer progressed, the economic and infrastructural situation in California deteriorated further. Supply shortages resulted in the first set of rolling blackouts on June 14, representing a significant escalation of the problem for California citizens. Although ratepayers had been largely protected by the consumer price caps, negotiating intersections without traffic lights, elevator trappings and forced industry downtime, brought the public dependence on reliable power into sharp focus. Additionally, San Diego had left the consumer rate cap arrangement early and, with utilities passing high energy prices on to ratepayers, public anger was swelling. Energy companies were increasingly being suspected of foul play by citizens and politicians alike. Moreover, Enron was singled out, partly for the company's vocal advocacy for the reforms, but also because it was increasingly seen by many as a self-interested, out-of-state opportunist. By contrast, many of those involved in Enron's corruption continued to blame the regulations, showing contempt for the state's struggling utility companies and government. One particular incident serves as an example of this perspective. During a hot weekend in August and after sustained low rainfall, the reservoir supplying the Bonneville Hydroelectric Dam in Oregon was below operational limits. The ISO was again unable to find generation from other areas and, with demand reaching peak levels, the state-owned dam chose to run anyway. 
this further reduced the water levels, stranding and then killing a large amount of the reservoir's salmon fish and egg supplies that were usually protected by the dam's operational limits. Enron's traders ridiculed the episode. For instance, Belden, in a conversation with head of Enron Government Affairs, Rick Shapiro stated it's hot and they don't have enough power, and they kill fish in the Northwest too, so the people of California can go enjoy themselves at a baseball game. He then goes on to confirm his traders were exporting 400 megawatts of fishkill power straight back out of California. In doing this, Belden's traders were materially reducing the availability of electricity within California, while simultaneously deriding the state's predicament. The same incident was further lamented by other within Enron, with one trader even suggesting they work together with environmentalists to stop the practice. A further aspect of this rationalization was its views on wholesale price caps within California. These caps differed from retail caps in that they limited the price the ISO itself could pay for bulk energy. It was only in the real-time market that the ISO could accept bids over the cap, and even then, only from out-of-state generators. To manage spiraling prices, the original cap of $750 had been reduced to $500 in July. However, after having minimal effect, it was reduced further to $250 on August 7th. This decrease proved similarly ineffective due to the interstate nature of the grid, which meant traders could hide their energy outside the ISO jurisdiction, only to bring it in once the cap trading period had passed. Tapes revealed traders' annoyance as the cap continued to reduce, renewing their efforts to avoid it through strategies such as the ricochet. Such a situation is seen in this exchange between Enron's Jeff Richter and the utility, City of Reading. Marvin, yeah, yeah, you know we're running for him too, but the way I look at it, you know, if we've sold a lot of it out of state and a lot of it off, you know, it's just, they, the regulator, made their bed, they can lie in it. Jeff, that's right man, just poo push it out. That's why the, I mean, it's what we have to do. Additionally, higher natural gas prices were also having a knock-on effect on electricity production costs in gas-fired generation units. When the input costs, gas, incurred in producing electricity increased, the wholesale electricity price responded accordingly. At the point at which the input cost exceeded the ISO's wholesale price cap, generators could not sell to them without making a loss. Ultimately, the caps represented the quintessence of what traders maintained as ill-thought-out government intervention, allowing a collectively constructed belief in their trading strategies as an acceptable way to mitigating the compromised market environment. This was further compounded when different parts of the Californian government were seen to be working against each other. For instance, the enforcement of pollution permits, a tradable license allowing nitrogen oxide, NOx, emissions, further limited supply, as generators without permits were forced to shut down. This was picked up by one Enron trader, who highlighted the ludicrous situation, noting that part of the government were crying for energy and staged two emergency threatened blackouts while another was threatening fines for generating. In arguing the acceptability of withholding generation to a partner firm, he goes on to note rhetorically, I'll run my generator, but I'm not gonna put my, I'm not gonna bankrupt my company because you guys can't decide how you're gonna run your market. In this way, traders would articulate their interpretations of events, capturing with them the aspects of blame or animosity towards the state, its utility companies and its citizens. These were influenced by specific day-to-day -day events, which aided their interpretation and provided validity to their actions. Such interpretations ultimately portrayed those struggling with the crisis as victims of their own failings, rather than their own activities within the struggling markets. Adapting to increase scrutiny. By late summer, the situation in California had deteriorated further, and with ever-increasing wholesale prices and suspicions of foul play, utilities pressed the FERC to investigate whether manipulation had occurred within the new market. 
Until now, Enron had been happy to support the West Power traders, content that their endeavors were bringing in record earnings. However, the FERC inquiry prompted Enron's risk management team to launch their own investigation into the division's practices, the details of which Houston was largely still unaware. Though their investigation revealed the traders' strategies, code names and all, Enron's lawyers ultimately permitted its traders to continue, albeit with notice that their strategies remained a concern. In November, the FERC also reported back on their investigation, finding that a combination of supply and demand imbalance and flawed market design had caused the unjust and unreasonable rates for short-term energy. Claiming insufficient time and a lack of data, the report failed to substantiate any specific incidents of manipulation, but they acknowledged the opportunity was there and that market data suggested such abuses may have already occurred. Within California, the FERC's decision was seen by many as a failure to act on blatant exploitation, and widely criticized. Despite the report's findings, the crisis continued to create complications for Enron's traders, with some partners becoming increasingly reluctant to engage in the inflammatory gaming activities. This, in turn, frustrated their ability to maximize opportunities effectively, as the use of alliances was key to their trading strategies. As the political risk increased, some could not reconcile the risk of being found complicit in the worsening problems. Such reluctance was particularly strong among Enron's public partners who, irrespective of their own views, feared others might see their actions as unacceptable. In one case, a partner explains the nasty political situation that would result for a public agency being found to have exported energy out of California, exacerbating the problem while others were trying to solve it. Thus, rather than a failure to rationalize their actions, for some, the crisis tipped the balance of political risk and financial reward, making participation more of a liability than an opportunity. Despite traders' efforts to encourage continued involvement, the reluctance by some to continue was clearly a frustration as, throughout Enron's network, partners were split on whether to continue. From an internal perspective, the risks surrounding California came to a head on December 12, when Enron's legal team returned to Portland, where ultimately, they instructed the cessation of the traders' strategies. At least a partial suspension was subsequently apparent from communications, with some traders seeing the move as a prudent one and others eager for a resumption. However, this state of inactivity did not last long, and it is clear that manipulation activity resumed just a few weeks later. Instead, the increased political and legal scrutiny encouraged Enron's traders and their network of partners to incorporate new, clandestine behaviors into their normalized practice. Again, Enron's traders led the way, encouraging the use of cell phones and chat rooms to avoid monitored official telephone and email channels. By their nature, no records exist of these communications, however, their existence is documented by references made during monitored exchanges. For instance, Belden himself can be heard telling someone in a partner firm so, you should get an untapped line as well. Moreover, he goes to note, if you were to play your conversation to the ratepayer in San Diego, how would it sound? If someone was looking dash you know, looking to see market gaming, they'd say, oh, so you did think you could set price, so you're guilty. In this exchange, he was explicitly connecting his motives for privacy to the social unacceptability and perceived illegality of their practices. That so many examples of corrupt practice, including clandestine communication, have come to light is more than a little incongruous. After all, if unmonitored platforms were used, why do so many incriminating sources survive today? Potentially, the fear of incrimination was blunted by the level to which corruption was normalized, with gaming so routine that members struggled to see its wider implications. Rationalization does not in itself preclude deception or secrecy, and actors were aware that their actions would not be perceived favorably in wider circles. However, as frequently committed acts of rationalized behavior become normal, even mundane, actors are likely to commit less to keeping them hidden. 
This is most clearly seen in their lack of delicacy when moving between monitored and unmonitored platforms, thus signposting the existence and even rationale for clandestine practices. For instance, in a cell phone voicemail left for one of his traders about that evening's trading, John Forney states explicitly I didn't want to call you on my recorded line. Thus, although they knew they should communicate in private, a belief in their actions and the regularity with which they executed them, many committed in their thousands, meant some incrimination was inevitable. In January 2001, Forney moved to Houston, and his colleague Bill Williams was promoted as his successor. At this time, some of the original trading strategies remained suspended, with political risk and market illiquidity issues continuing to limit traders' use of them. Despite the risks, Williams was keen to continue the work his predecessor had instigated, noting his desire to take the shackles off and get after it again. However, Forney cautioned Williams that they needed to limit their activity until the crisis had settled, also warning him that personal liability was an increasing issue for them. Accordingly, Enron's focus on actual trading strategies such as the Death Star reduced somewhat, with them instead working with partners to physically withhold energy from California, increasing prices throughout the Western markets in the process. In California, the financial implications of the crisis were reaching a critical point. The creditworthiness of indebted utilities meant generators were unwilling to sell power to their de facto creditors, the PX and ISO. While such credit issues were a genuine liability for anyone selling into California, this was not the only reason why the state was struggling to acquire energy. By physically withholding energy, market participants were able to maintain high prices within the Western interconnection, offering continued profit for companies like Enron. Indeed, such withholding was actively pursued by Enron, with the FERC finding it used its ability to control and withhold large amounts of generation to manipulate the market. To do this, they also needed to mitigate the ISO's new federal powers, which allowed them to compel generators to supply them during shortages. In this way, Enron's traders encouraged its partners to find increasingly elaborate ways to avoid selling to California. Such activity was illustrated most prominently when Williams asked a generator, Las Vegas Cogeneration, to get a little creative, and come up with a reason to go down. Here, his contact agreed to stop generation for maintenance, meaning a plausible excuse accompanied their withholding of electricity. This allowed them to avoid a schedule they had already committed to California, while the state again was forced to implement emergency procedures. Similarly, on January 19, Enron was ordered to notify the ISO of all their available generation in the whole Western interconnection. On receiving the order, the trader on duty immediately called numerous colleagues and between them constructed a way to minimize the amount of energy they would have to declare. In this way, market manipulation had escalated from trading strategies that unfairly exploited the rules, to actions that actively contravened the federal orders implemented to mitigate the crisis. It was not until June that a fall in prices gave the first suggestion the crisis was abating, by which time it had already brought about the bankruptcy of both the PX and major Californian utility, Pacific Gas and Electric. The FERC had extended emergency regulation, requiring all generators in the Western Interconnection to bid available power into California, whether on or off-peak. This closed many of the remaining opportunities for interstate manipulation and by the end of summer the prices had returned to pre-crisis levels. For Enron's traders, the significance of the energy crisis was dramatically eclipsed by the bankruptcy and fraud scandal of the company just months later. As the various companies within its network entered a period of lean post-crisis market conditions, Enron was making ever more dramatic headlines. The impact this had on the Portland-based traders was naturally significant, and, after months of forced inactivity due to its poor credit rating, the group was largely disbanded before being sold off in the fallout from Enron's bankruptcy. Conclusion When California deregulated its energy industry, it materially changed the environment of electricity generation and supply throughout the western states. 
not only did it separate the previously integrated processes of generation, transmission and distribution, but the experimental market structure encouraged the entry of new market participants, who offered their financial expertise to incumbents unused to operating within competitive markets. Among these, Enron's West Power Division was found to have conceived and exploited various illicit strategies, manipulating the new markets and contributing to the ensuing crisis. This article develops an analytically structured history, which shows how Enron normalized corruption in the form of market manipulation, developing and maintaining a facilitative network of complicit organizations that enabled their illicit strategies. Enron's manipulation of the California energy markets thus highlights that some cases of corruption are difficult to understand without considering routine interorganizational involvement as a fundamental component, even when ostensibly concentrated around a single corrupt organization. While it has been assumed that corrupt organizations often require a level of external involvement to enable corrupt behavior, the dynamics of such arrangements have largely been omitted in favor of organization-level analysis. Our analysis shows how the strategies employed by Enron would not have been feasible without its network of partners, who held structurally different positions from Enron and controlled the generation assets traders needed to execute their strategies. In this way, Enron's use of network-enabled corruption was embedded within the division's core business model, providing financial services to market participants, evolving partnerships over time to increase control of resources beyond the scope of their legitimate market relationship. Far from discrete and unambiguous rule-breaking, this alternative conceptualization of interorganizational corruption shows how such abuses often mutate from the normal pursuit of competitiveness and profitability, and as our analysis shows, this can extend to include an organization's network of ostensibly legitimate market relations. While illicit cartels represent an alternative form of interorganizational corruption, these are notably different to the concept we introduce here. Within such networks, scope for collaboration is narrowly focused, on price fixing, and generally disconnected from legitimate market structures. As such, price fixing is generally intermittent and covert practice. Brooks talks of GE managers periodically going to surreptitious lunches and holding euphemistic discussions with colleagues, which, even when widely practiced and accepted, are generally forbidden officially by the organizations involved. Bribery or rent seeking relations are similarly unambiguous in their wrongfulness, and also, like cartels, involve corruption committed across a network, rather than through one dominant organization. In contrast, our case elaborates a form of corruption that closely aligned with normal operational activities, representing illicit means by which multiple organizational commercial interests were directly or indirectly realized. Thus, traders communicated their practices in an uncomplicated and explicit way, even highlighting their gaming achievements and discussing their strategies and partnerships openly. It was only with the worsening energy crisis and FERC's investigation, that their corruption took on a more clandestine form. In this regard, our analysis of Enron also shows the normalization of corruption, whereby market manipulation became a core component of day-to-day operations and a deliberate pursuit of organizational profit. While the process of normalization has been described empirically, most notably in Diane Vaughn's Ethnographic History of Deviance within NASA, detailed analysis concerning corruption remains largely theoretical. Normalization within Enron and its network emerged from intricate patterns of group-level interactions that, while not necessarily of individual significance, collectively showed the embedding and routinization of deviant behaviors over time. Sustained inquiry into the psychology of wrongdoing also shows that actors often frame their decisions around self-deceptive rationalizations, which can themselves contribute to the process of normalization. While this is primarily seen as a cognitive process, the everyday organization of corruption shows how these rationalizations are also developed through the interactions and collectively constructed beliefs and responses of participating individuals. In this way, the collective interpretation of, and response to, the crisis was mediated through regular and formal interaction, 
and the clandestine norms later instigated by Belton provides a key example of the socially organized responses to changing market and regulatory circumstances. California's reforms clearly provided a facilitative context for corruption, constituting a form of criminogenic environment. Within Enron, exploitable loopholes directly influence the strategic direction of the division, with traders working to expose and operationalize these lucrative flaws. For its partners, the reforms markedly changed the nature of energy supply, adding new risks, opportunities, and uncertainty that they addressed through their relationships with Enron. These responses were bound within a fledgling commercial landscape, where ambiguity and emergent norms further compromised ethical decision-making. Though the regulations were breaking new ground within the energy industry, they were also symptomatic of wider trends of the period, and Enron's network of partners illustrates how some chose to navigate these conditions within this particular industry context. Here, understanding the manipulation of California's energy markets, requires an appreciation of the integrated nature of both physical and market-based elements of the energy supply industry. Indeed, the network characteristics of energy supply highlights that, while individual organizations are often singled out as culprits, the complexity and interconnectedness of some industries can precipitate more cooperative, market-based responses to criminogenic conditions. Within this paper, we combine a conceptual elaboration of organizational corruption with a rich empirical account of what is usually a hidden and difficult-to-observe setting. This historically situated view extends our temporal appreciation of corruption beyond existing theorizing and elaborates how it actually occurs as an organizational and market phenomenon over time. This is significant as corruption is often highly complex in nature, blurring legitimate business practices with abuses of authority and the privileges conferred through participation within a given commercial context. This makes it an important area for business historians to explore further, and extensions such as network-enabled corruption highlight the affordances historical approaches present to understanding how organizational actors actually go about exploiting such behaviors over time. In providing our history of Enron and California energy crisis, we elaborate the day-to-day -day practices and networks of relationships that enabled a corrupt organization to function and in doing so, demonstrate how corruption became a normalized and highly integrated part of organizational life.